Welcome, welcome to the famous art show. Self-taught or accidental, compulsively drawn to create the image. You lived a full life, then you stumbled upon a knack for creating iconic imagery from a past long gone, folks. A past long gone. Just the will, just the freaking sheer will to draw, paint, and sculpt one's own life fractured mind outside the normal societal confines is extraordinary in every way artist on the edge is the name of this episode folks welcome to artist on the edge i will talk about four artists including myself let's begin the ex-slave renter of land family man and artist Bill Trailer. He was an ex-slave. Then he became a landowner. Well, he actually rented the land from his former masters. Who literally started drawing at the age of 86 in Montgomery, Alabama. While homeless. Living outside a business establishment. Where the owners entrusted him to take care of Bill Drew on cardboard sheets, back of postcards, and a multitude of discarded printed paper to create his whimsical figures, animals, and social narratives. Depicting his past experience as, as a slave, father of a family of his own former life becoming destitute. He was a father. He had a lot of children. They all grew up. And they just totally abandoned this poor man. You know, he, this guy lived through a crucial part of American history. Uh, I gotta tell you, his work is so pure. You know, he's, he's just out there in the street, in the heat, in Montgomery, Alabama, drawing lots of people. It, it's like Center City now today, Montgomery, Alabama, then. Probably it is the same today. And there's a lot of traffic there, a lot of um, a lot of wealth, a lot of commoners, a lot of whatever going through there, watching that old man drawing. And and I tell you, I, I rem <clears throat> he he was known to love the color blue during his heyday. It is known that he had one exhibition in Montgomery, Alabama, that was organized by a lawyer that actually bought him art supplies when he first encountered Bill Trailer in that time. Remember, this man at that time was 86 years old, frail, homeless, out there in this urban environment. He was a care he was an outside caretaker to a, to a business. He was almost um <clears throat> you know, he was a he was guarding the place in, essentially and doing probably some Ah, jobs cleaning up or whatever, but uh, in, in a way he was earning his keep. But he did—he was out there in the elements doing his incredible iconography images of his past life. I, I gotta tell you, um, he did sell work. I know he did. It's not documented. Um, he. He took attention to a lawyer who started buying the mart supplies, as I said. And it's funny that that man 
that man sustained his creative fire under those, you know, under those crazy situations. But you got to understand, he used to pick crops, he used to um, build, he used to do a lot for the landowners back when he was a former slave. He adopted Trailer. His last name is adopted from his former slave master. They named his name is Bill, but he um, took the last names of the of the slave masters at the time, and then he took over the land, ran the land, and then for some reason everything just went amok. The family grew up. Everybody left. He probably couldn't take care of it anymore, and he went to the, uh, Montgomery, Alabama, away from where he used to live in order to create these mystifying images. If you go look at Bill Trailer's artwork, you would be f uh, you would be just floored because the simplicity and the honesty of how he he did a biography of himself, a visual biography. The narratives there of people fighting, animals, carriages, the building of um of farmhouses. I mean, it's just incredibly and gracefully done. And mind you, he only did art for 10 years. He died at the young age of 96. I mean, that guy also had health problems where his, I, I believe one of his legs was amputated, and he even draws about that. And, and he managed to still create artwork after that experience. Uh, this man was definitely, definitely on the edge. Unfortunately, his career started so late, but he's not the only artist that actually had the career started late. You go back to the Impressionists like Edgar Degas. He started his career in the 30s. I tell you, he did nothing before 30 years old. He just started his career late. But remarkably, Bill Trailer started at the age, at the tender age of 86. He may have done it earlier, but he never took it seriously until he was out there destitute. And I, 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 you got to admire that man's work. you got to admire that man's work. Whenever you get a chance, look up Bill Trailer. That man is an incredible folk artist, very genuine. There's nothing like his work. He, you know, He's a precursor of the neo-expressionist, which I'm going to talk about later. Interesting, Bill Trailer was born in 1854 and died in 1949. He lived a very, very long life. That, that's pretty, pretty damn good if you ask me. you got to admire that man's work. Okay, on to the next artist. We're going to talk about a ranchero, a railroad worker, a family man and artist from Jalisco, Mexico. His name is Martin Ramirez. Martin Ramirez, my friends who began drawing while he was in a mental institution. His story is tragic and inspiring at the same time. Martin Ramirez, in the late 1920s and early 30s, had to flee Mexico, leaving his entire family of his wife and four children during some kind of political uprising to start a new life in California. Sometime in the 1930s, he was arrested and committed to the Stockton State Hospital and then later to the DeWitt State Hospital, which he was transferred from for mental issues. Where did he did the where he both those places is where he did bulk of the work. I mean, all of his artwork was there. 
um, <clears throat> yeah, this guy was deeply religious. He did a lot of drawings of his deep belief of Catholic Catholicism. He was, but also he he did a lot of drawings of railroads, Madonnas, and childs. It's very prevalent in his art. He drew these elaborate box mazes, encapsulating. Whew, a lot of trains, cowboys, horses, iconography of religious saints. Remarkable drawings they are. In the late 90s, I was actually walking through, walking through Philadelphia where I used to live. Well, I do live, actually. Um, I don't remember what gallery it was. But this is a gallery that sold a lot of, um, a lot of fine art and a lot of uh, maybe uh, they specialized at that time. A lot of the so-called folk artists and I, and um, a lot of the work that was not in the art world and art world. But I, I noticed that gallery was there. It was one of those galleries that you just, one of those galleries that had, you had to walk downstairs. One of those basement galleries. But I, I remember one day looking in the window and I see Mart, a, a show of Martin Ramirez's work there. And I was just floored. And I and and when I I remember the prices vividly because at that time I was um, considering to buy artwork, but those prices at that time for those significantly sized Martin Ramirez was only twenty two hundred dollars. If I had that money then, I would have bought it. But unfortunately, I was a poor art student and broke. Then, um, I just simply could not afford to buy it. Oh well, such is life. But I gotta tell you, Martin Ramirez was probably not crazy until he was forced to leave his family. That definitely drove him to the edge. I tell you, that that did it. I I think that drove him to the edge because imagine you're a family man. You have a you have a whole empire. I mean, his empire was a ranch, farm. He took he was a, probably a farmer. He probably what he. He probably did a lot of work for his family, and then you have a political uprising disrupting that normalcy that he had. Of course, Martin was diagnosed as a catatonic schizophrenic. Martin Ramirez, you know, he was born in 1895 and died in 1963. In the art world, he's known to be the best ever self-taught artist in the United States history. That's what they say. That's what they say. I, 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 that's not proven, but they're saying. But, but if you do see his work, it's very precise. It's very, it's designed beautifully. There's when you see a Martin Ramirez, you're gonna know a Martin Ramirez because it's very distinct. You know, he, he's an original. No one out there, I'm telling you, no one out there can do those drawings he did. If you can look Martin Ramirez up and see for yourself, I mean, this guy's incredible passion for storytelling. And composition. I mean, not only he did trains and Madonnas, he did a lot of landscapes too. He did a lot of these fantastical um, creations that entices the imagination. You know, it, it goes back to the Chicago artist um, Darger, the guys who he did these really weird women with the heads and everything. These real dolls. The guy was never considered an artist after he died two lawyers took his work make him famous but he he left thousands and thousands of drawings but going back to martin ramirez you know they had the same kind of aptitude but their living circumstances were highly different 
highly different. I mean, for, for an artist to do this type of work and not understand that he's an artist and he was doing those drawings for therapy reasons and at the time when he was in DeWitt's uh, mental hospital, they took the drawings and they destroyed them. But the employees there somehow mailed the drawings back to Mexico to family members to actually preserve the work. And they were actually, he probably did a ton of other works that was probably destroyed, unfortunately. But they managed to save over 300 of his drawings. And he did these huge makeshift drawings, with, you know, with, with a lot of handmade paper. You know, between Martin Ramirez and Bill Trailer, they, in a way, they did similar things, but in totally two different environments, which is incredible. And they're, they're contemporaries because they were both born in the late 19th century. They were both born at the very tip of the 19th century, which made them both interesting. And I tell you, uh, Martin Ramirez, to me, wow. I, when I first saw his work and took notice of his work while I was an undergrad at PAFA, I was blown away because I've never seen an artist draw so precise and have such concise and clarity. You knew when you saw his work, you knew the iconic imagery, what it was. And, you know, there are lectures out there by these professors dissecting his Catholic beliefs and the iconography from Mexico. I mean, literally... He is actually preserving a lot of the artifacts that he probably was exposed to while being a Catholic in Mexico and and the iconic Mexican culture, which he was able to put on paper and Mexican life and American life. I mean, both Bill Trailer and Martin Ramirez are geniuses where they're actually telling the world their past lives in such a way where you don't need words to actually understand these images. These images speak for themselves. That is the beauty of these two artists. Martin Ramirez was born in 1895 and died in 1963. You see, Bill Trailer, very similar. Let's time travel to the 1980s. I tell you, a former male prostitute, high school dropout, drug addict, vandal, and eventually a famous artist. We all know him now, Jean-Michel Basquiat. I'm going to tell you, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Oh, man, you think he had a nice, cheesy life? Hail to the no! If you read his books like I did, there's a lot of grit, which I'm going to tell you. That's where I say former male prostitute because at one time he had to do that to survive. He was actually homeless for a period of time. Not like, probably similar to Martin Ramirez, but not like Bill Trailer. He was out there for a while. But this young man was a complete reverse version of Bill Trailer and Martin Ramirez. I mean, he, he's the complete opposite, but... What's funny about Jean-Michel Basquiat, instead of later in life or in his midlife becoming homeless and destitute, he was homeless at the age of 17 because of his father, Gerard. He was so strict with him. But anyway, let's get, let's get to his story at first before I go into that. He, he, God, I, I got to tell you, Basquiat lived in a middle-income home in New York. His father, Gerard, and his mother, Matilda Basquiat, Gave him an incredible middle life 
you know, a middle-class lifestyle. He had a great lifestyle as, as, as a youth. But interesting thing about him, he also suffered a major trauma because he was hit by a car, losing his spleen, and while in the hospital, his mother Matilda gave him a book called Grey's Anatomy, which actually sparked his imagery and his iconography for his famous images that, that, that we now see today. But uh, I, I got to tell you, um, also... <clears throat> He was very privileged. He was known to understand and speak three languages. I don't know if he was literate in three languages, but he definitely spoke English and wrote English well. But then again, um, he spoke French, he spoke Spanish, and he also spoke English. Those are the three languages that predominated his way of life. And he was highly intelligent, but highly reckless as well. You know, after his parents separated, Matilda and Gerard... That's where the problems began. And also, um, Gerard was just really harsh with the kid. When I read the books, it was said that he lived underneath a ladder. And there was a mattress and a TV set where he would doodle all the time as, as a kid and a, and a young teenager. The problem with, Mar with Basquiat, uh, he got into the drug scene early. I mean, it, was, it was no doubt about that. And I hate to say it, that, that, that chemical-induced... Um, euphoria was a part of his creative madness. Without the euphoria, without the chemical inducement, I don't think he would be able to create any of those great art paintings that we see today. Even his life traumas as well. And also, what people don't know about Jean Michel Basquiat, they, they, Matilda and Gerard Basquiat lived in Puerto Rico for two years, and it was said that he was raped by one of the hairstylists there, a male real stylist, and it was just terrible. And he was known to be bisexual as well. But when he left his house, I mean, he literally ran away, ran away, and he started doing all these Samo um, poetry all throughout the lower Manhattan side where the galleries were with his friend Al Diaz at the time. And he also was, he also appeared in MTV. He, he was like, he was like um, cutting off his dreads and everything. You would see him like almost bald and he would dye his hair, you know, um, <clears throat> blonde or, or whatever. But these were old black and white footages that I saw. But what made him interesting, he primarily, his homeless life was primarily in Union Square, staying in people's couches. And he actually had to prostitute himself to eat or make money or whatever. I mean, the guy was in dire. And eventually he... Was he was his father brought him back home and then he escaped again and never to come back again and he he was out in the streets until he was fortunate to fall in love with uh, Miss Susan Malouk Susan Malouk a Canadian woman who was studying in one of the colleges in New York at the time um, she had an apartment and they started to live together and you know from there he was able to meet. Through the show in the PSI one show, Anna Nosasi, who then lent her, lent him, her gallery basement to do these iconic, these iconic paintings that we see today, and he and after that he'd been famous. He's in seen Madonna and everything, but Suzanne Malouk, she was the muse and the love, the main love of his life. But um, Basquiat was not like. Let's say uh, he was never, in, 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 um, you know, committed to her. He was, also, he was also sleeping with a lot of women at that point. 
and um, who knows, maybe men, I have no idea, but uh, he was not committed to that poor lady, and eventually they split, and that was the end of it. So, I tell you, Basquiat was homeless at the age of 17, so it's so what I read. I don't know whoever the author, um, Rene Ricard, or who, um, whoever, Phoebe, whoever wrote these books based on a lot of stories that they probably um, recorded or actually written from people who knew Jean-Michel Basquiat back in the day and know his story. I'm just going back for what I know. A disclaimer for the Basquiat estate. This is just information that I read. If there's any corrections that you want me to know, please tell me. But this is stuff that I know about. Thank you. I respect Jean-Michel Basquiat's work, but I have unfortunately... People don't talk about the nitty and gritty side of it. I'm going to talk about it. I've heard some podcasts on him. Beautifully done. Beautiful references. But they leave out the ugly stuff. I talked about the ugly stuff now. But I keep it I keep it decent. I'm not going to just say that he was a disgusting person. Who knows? But it is known of, it's a known fact that Jean-Michel Basquiat was bragging about how he could tolerate the high use of drugs. But eventually that led to his demise. And that's after Andy Warhol died. Andy Warhol was like Basquiat's matriarch at one point. He was his mentor. He, they learned from each other. They even collaborated in paintings. But after Andy Warhol died in 1987, that's where Basquiat's decline became. He became worse. He, he got depressed. He got... I mean, he was doing drugs every day to mask the pain to his eventual demise. He died with a, with a major drug overdose. If he, were alive to, if he were alive today, I think he would have survived with the Narcan. But that technology didn't exist in 1988 when he died. And it's unfortunate that Basquiat, being young, he was hardworking. I mean, like Bill Trailer, like Martin Ramirez, he also used found objects. And made these wonderful creations of his expressive life. He was fearless. That's the thing about Basquiat that attracted me to his work. He was fearless. He would not care. He would do an image and paint over it, all over it. And do layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers. And that's the beauty of his work. When you see his work, there are probably like tens or tw 10 or 20 different images in one painting. You wouldn't even notice it. He's known for crossing out words. I mean, he created a very distinct style that at first, when I looked at his work when I was an undergrad, I didn't really care for it. I'm like, what is this crap? Then I looked at it more, and I looked at it more, and I saw the urban vigor that he brought to the world. I saw what Paul Clay, Kandinsky, Pablo Picasso, Brock, all of these artists that wanted to draw like a child did not achieve Basquiat to me was the only one that successfully and sophisticatedly made these beautiful imagery look effortlessly done by a child and he did a beautiful job now I understand why he was so popular because he also captured the 80s he's also encapsulated a lot of time, I mean, when you look at his work, it's like going back in time, going forward in time, and going right now in the present. He was an amazing artist to me. 
and I got obsessed. I started buying all of his books. I went to his first major exhibition back in 1992 at the Whitney Museum. I mean, I was just enthralled by the sheer creative force that he brought to this world. Unfortunately, his, his addiction was his demise, but also his addiction was a part of that fluid imagery he was able to create. He was known to stay up all night. Madonna was a health buff. They dated for a while, but she had to leave him because he was just doing too much drugs. She couldn't stand it. They, she parted with him. But she was also an integral part of his creative life. This is when he lived in California and started showing with the Larry Gugashin Gallery back in 1982 and 83. Man, I'll tell you, that he's intense. That brother was a black American artist but, to me, he's a Haitian Puerto Rican. He's a Haitian Puerto Rican artist, Latino American artist. That's to me, a Latino American artist. Afro-Latino, for a matter of fact. I hate these terms. Basquiat was just an artist, an American artist. And finally, when I read this stuff, they don't put black artists. They put American artists. But you got to understand, he, he, he just went, I mean, his paintings went skyrocketing. He sold a painting for $110 million. We all know this. If you don't know this, look it up. Everything is there. Jean-Michel Basquiat is a phenomenon. I tell you, he was definitely on the edge as a youth. After that car accident, I'm sure he lost something. I'm sure he lost something. And then he was the rebellious child. He was probably coping with pain, masking it with drugs. I mean, he was thrown to the edge. Absolutely thrown to the edge. Very smart young man. I bet you if he were not an artist, he would have probably been an engineer or some kind of lawyer and, and nobody would know about him. But unfortunately, these events in life made him the king he is today. Made him the king of art in that sense of the neo-expressionist era. I mean, you got, you got artists like um, Francisco Clemente who actually collaborated with him. And Andy Warhol, obviously, who was part of that group. I mean, he Basquiat was also, he produced an album. He, he, he started a rock band. Wow. He, he, didn't, he never played the flute, but he just did that as a, 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 as a prop. He just did it because he wanted to do it. He did it. He put out, he also um, produced an album, an actual album. To now, it's really rare and probably very expensive, like his artwork. Basquiat was definitely part of our time. Also, the, uh, he was at the point of the excess of the 80s, too. How he met Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol and Bruno Biscoffberger went in a restaurant, and he was this young kid at the time, probably homeless at the time. He was selling his postcards, and he goes up to them and sells to Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol, I think, buys two of them, and, you know, he makes his fart first art sale through Andy Warhol, not knowing that they're going to become friends, really good friends, later on, a few years later in life, which is really remarkable. He met his icon without understanding. He, he himself becoming an icon and becoming a legend today. Jean-Michel Basquiat is always a hero to me to that effect where he was honest with his work. He didn't care. Unfortunately, um... He dealt with a lot of society's marginalism with, with the uh, post-colonial culture that we live today. We all know this. The indigenous, we all know this, people. 
But I'm telling you, Dima Shobaskiat had a rough life. He really did. And between Martin Ramirez and Bill Trailer and Dima Shobaskiat, they were homeless at a period of their lives. Dima Shobaskiat started early, Ramirez started in the middle, and Bill Trailer was at the end. That's what makes these artists remarkable to me. And they were all self-taught artists. None of them went to art school. None. Closest one maybe Jean Michel Basquiat because he went to a school that catered to um, um, creative individuals him. But I, he's even started a, a magazine there, but he didn't have any academic formal education at that school in New York City while he was alive. Okay? All three of these artists are mega artists to me. and But unfortunately, since they're not a part of an academy, they're self-taught. They're, they're, um, they're both, they're all self-taught. But you know what's funny? Um, when I look at Basquiat, nobody says that about him. Nobody says he's self-taught. Yes, he was self-taught. He put himself out there with Samuel and created his artwork from all of the poetry him and Al Diaz did in New York City. But his work was so far ahead of his time, it took almost 30 years for the world to catch up to what he did then. And for the people that saw it early like me, understood that. And now the world understands it. But he, my God, I tell you, he's one of my heroes in the art world. He's one of them. Goodness me. <laughs> I'm not an artist on the edge like those guys. No, I'm not. So far, hopefully, hopefully that will not happen to me. I have no idea. Life has its way to show its ugly rear end at whatever part of life that can. But God forbid that happens to anyone, to myself or anyone that I know, that what these men been through. Whew. So, due to current living arrangements, these podcasts are therapy for me. I get the freedom in this platform to say what I know and researched. Hopefully you'll get hopefully getting into <clears throat> you know, getting into those minds who need it. Hopefully you learn something from this. Now my story. Okay, let's now let's begin with my story, which is pretty interesting. And this is why the edge is what the edge is. This is another college alcoholic adventure. Yeah, I always talk about this stuff on my previous podcast, except for the last one that I've done. In 1989-1990, I don't know, I forget the year, um, <clears throat> me, a 19-year-old kid, went out with a few of my friends, undergrads from PAFA. We, were, we went to Dirty Franks. We went to the Dirty Franks Bar in Pine Street in Philadelphia. It was me, Rafael Tiberino, Mark Pilato, Mark Hershey, and Doug Powley who drank probably more than two liters of beer and shots that night. I drank so much and I was talking so much until Raphael said to me, he, he looked at me funny. He goes like this and says, stand up. I'm like, what? He goes, stand up. I reluctant. I was reluctant at first. You know, I was reluctant. I was like, "What does this guy? What does it mean?" I felt fine. I thought I wasn't drunk. Oh boy. <laughs> okay, and he says, "Stand up." I'm like, "Okay." I did. Oh man, I felt the rush of alcohol run down my body. Boy, was I drunk as a skunk. I was like, "What the hell is?" It's almost like a brain freeze when you drink. You know. Um, 
an ice drink or whatever, and it just you just feel it's so good you feel it frozen in your head. But this time it's reversed. It's like it's like the reversal. All the alcohol that was probably stocked up in my head and boom down, and I was gone. I mean, I was I was like, oh lord, is this what it is being? You know, I knew how it was being drunk, but I didn't know how it was to be this kind of drunk. You know, mind you, I was 19 years old. I was just I was a young kid. And I'm I'm around all these people, and we were all shipping in to buy drinks and do whatever. Oh God! Later on that night, later on that night, there was a party nearby in an apartment, right near the bar, right, with an outside balcony. My stupid drunk, stupid self decided to take. I remember it was a white chair. I took the chair. I put it on the ledge of that balcony. I don't know what I did. I was swinging back and forth, back and forth. And then to the corner of my eye, I see Raphael running. I mean, this guy was like Speed Racer or something or, 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 or you know, um, The Flash. I mean, that guy was just running like something out of a comic book. He grabs me in the chair out of the ledge and puts me down and he shouts at me, Are you crazy? You could have died. You're nuts, because he's literally saw me. I was, I was like on the ledge, swinging back and forth. I was literally out of my mind and drunk. I was like, holy shit. I'll say it like that. I was like, my God, why? <laughs> but I was a drunk, stupid kid then. But I got to tell you, thank you, Raphael. You saved my life that night. But boy, was those some days, man. Those were some wild days. But I learned from that experience if I am inebriated or out of my consciousness or out of my own plane, not to do something that stupid. And surely enough, if I had fell, I would have been done. I don't think we'll be listening to these podcasts right now. <laughs> it's not funny, but at the same time, I chuckle because of the stupidity as a young man to actually do that feat and risk my life being in that state of mind. It's dangerous to be inebriated. I'm lucky that I wasn't a casualty of the many people out in the United States that died simply because they were drunk. Thank you, Lord. That doesn't happen to me or it didn't happen to people that I, once, that I know. I must say I was literally on the edge that day. Literally on the edge of death. What a night. My God. A drunk art student. 19 years old. Almost dead. Whew. That caused a really great concern for me. I was drinking so much at one point where I went home living with my parents. And I saw my father's beer. Budweiser. Ew. That beard looked at me. And I was like. I remember making this decision. I stopped myself. The beer, I mean, literally, the beer was like one of these, I don't know, the vibration was calling me. It was like the alcohol was coming out of the beer and say, drink, drink, drink. And I'm like, no. I made a decision then, and I make a decision now, never to drink in my own home. That's very expensive. Thank goodness I'm not an avid drinker. Whew, I got to tell you. That's, like I said, it's very expensive, but I learned then, as a 19-year-old man, never, ever, 
to drink at home till this day. Or if I do drink at home, I kind of curved it a little bit as I got older. It would be with someone, not by myself, ever by myself. Let's go back to Jean-Michel Basquiat, Bill Trailer, Martin Ramirez. These are the three artists that are totally, were totally on the edge when they were alive. They're not totally on the edge now because they're dead. But I got to tell you, that is the topic of the show. Artists is on the edge. I got to say, I'm gonna, I'm a bit on the edge, but that's, that's the onryism. That's the disjointed, that's the um, dislocated mentality of an artist. We're out of the box. That's simple as that. That's why we were so very interesting to so many out there. But these neo, a neo-expressionist, two folk artists in this episode all had a serious edge. They all had a serious edge, people. Basquiat overdose, Martin Ramirez mental issues, and Bill Trailer family who abandoned him to conclude artists in their own right, including me, are some kind, they're in some kind of edge. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please subscribe or like on my YouTube channel or my other platforms on RSS, Podomatic, wherever I'm subscribed. And, and if you have a question, please put it in there. I might be able to answer it. Don't be shy. If you like what I talk about, your art host, Juan Gomez, I will respond the best that I can. Or just leave some questions there. I will make a comment on a future video on a pre-recording. Thank you, amigos. It's been fun. It's been fun. Until the next episode, episode six coming soon. Remember, artist on the edge. Adios, amigos.